All right. What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to Serious Angler Podcast, powered by our friends over at X2 Power Batteries. As always, I'm your host, Bailey Agbra, and joined with me is the captain, Mr. Andy Full. What's going on? Oh, not a whole lot. I apologize for the mess behind me. Literally, I threw all of my stuff in the boat this morning at like six o'clock before I went fishing and just bomb went off. So and I just went down here for the first time since this morning because you know having a bunch of estrogen in my house now it was like a bloody murder scream fest for the last three hours since i got home from fishing so this is gonna be a nice little unwinding for me this evening yeah i i i really can't fathom what you're about to go through for the next 50 years with amanda and i have two daughters (laughs) yeah it's funny good luck buddy (laughs) with everyone i'm like you know there's three women in my house, and it's me and my cat who's like neutered. So does it count? He doesn't count. Yeah. He doesn't count. <laughs> Is it because he's an it now? So it doesn't count at all. He's a he she they. <laughs> it's a sheikin. It's a sheikin. Yeah. If you guys did not tune into the fantasy fishing show for Santi Cooper last night, literally Deacon tunes in. He calls he he calls in from his truck because he had horrible service. Finally comes in. It's not maybe five minutes into him. Uh, join us for the conversation literally mid com- mid talk he's like i think i'm getting pulled over <laughs> yeah. yeah he's like yeah guys uh can't make this up uh i think a cop pulled me over right now and uh thankfully no ticket which i really wish he, he kept uh, his live on for that that would have been really funny uh but he just had like a, apparently they had to do a boat inspection or something of that nature so super interesting but it was really funny it, it, we were probably laughing for the next 20 minutes People were just ragging on Deacon, and it was uh, he took it like a champ. Uh, it was a lot of fun. So if you want some laughs, highly encourage you guys go listen to the Santi Cooper preview show. Not only just for the picks, if you're playing, uh, <laughs> we're already getting it. Can we get a Sheikin update? Yeah, that's why I said Sheikin. <laughs> that's perfect. <laughs> Sarah, get out of jail. Sarah did not go to jail. Sarah's all right. Uh, <laughs> it was a wild show last night, and I imagine tonight will be. Just as wild with our good pal, Mr. Alex Rudd, joining us here tonight, who uh, you never know what you're going to get, uh, is what I've learned in my, my friendship with Alex here. Uh, but it's never bad. It's just You just never know. It's always good, but you just never know what, what you're going to get. <laughs> I feel like Rudd and I would get along great in real life, like outside the podcast, because we're basically like the same way in ways. Like, you never know what I'm going to say, and you just never know what you're going to get with Rudd. It's a, it's about... I, I, uh, I've predi- I've learned to you, for you to be relatively predictable, Andy. Oh, fuck. Part of my French. <laughs> Jeez, man. You just got off the wagon since you had your second kid here. Oh, yeah. Man. I'm way off the wagon today. Right, Like, you were ragging on me last night. You're making it personal. Yeah, I apologize. Making my picks for me. Like, it, yeah. I mean. All the estrogens building up inside of me being around. That's what it is because <laughs> land does the same thing. This is what it, it's all making sense now. You're becoming a woman. <laughs> You're Andrea. Oh, great. <laughs> we got Sheikin and Andrea. I might as well just change my name on here now. Oh, we got uh, we got Alex's wife in here, Bethany, who I call mom. She's uh, he, She says that Alex is in a rare mood tonight, so watch out. <laughs> great. Oh, Lord. We're screwed. It, this should just be Tuesday night shenanigans with fishing talk mixed in. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it hasn't really been fishing talk lately. It's just been a lot of shenanigans, it seems. Mm-hmm. But uh, speaking of shenanigans, let's get him in here. 
Mr. Alex Rudd. What's going on, pal? <laughs> yep, here we go. <laughs> howdy, howdy, let's get ruddy. That's like, is that what we're doing? <laughs> Dude, I'm excited. I'm so glad to be here. I love you guys so much. <laughs> I'm just- you drunk? <laughs> no, no. It's just been a minute since I've been able to talk this like fishing with somebody, and it's like, so my podcast for the past probably like four weeks has been very serious conservation talk. Like, and I've had some really good guests on. Mm-hmm. That's Steve Barden, Gene Gilliland, Shan McGorman. I mean, like, dude, fantastic conversations. Mm-hmm. But I'm like just biting at the bit to do like an underrated overrated and just like crap all over Morgan Wallen or something. Like I just like, I'm ready to talk, but I know we've got like a focus tonight that we need to focus on. So we're going to focus on that, but I can't make any promises at what point this thing will totally derail and we'll go off the rails. And I'm waiting for right now. We'll start right now. Morgan Wallen talk. Did you see John King's post about Morgan Wallen (laughs) playing Ducky? And he's like, Every, like for the entire day, he like posted about like doing stuff that he'd rather be doing than going to a Morgan Wallen concert. It was kind of funny. I love it. I love it, dude. Listen, Morgan Wallen is just—I ain't got nothing for that old boy. And he's probably like it, the thing is, he's a buddy of his. Like follows me on Instagram or something. So I know at some point or another, I'm probably gonna have like Morgan Wallen fangirls all over me hating me. But like, he's just a. I mean, he, it's just like a redneck, and he's just talking redneck. I mean, you know, I, I, I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> damn, my ears. I'm sorry, JP. <laughs> As people say, I wish Alex was on last night's show. You would have thoroughly enjoyed Deacon saying, I'm getting pulled over, boys. I got to go. <laughs> Keep filming him. Keep filming him. <laughs> <laughs> I wish he left it on. That would have been incredible. But, but, yeah, dude, I mean, every time we get you on, it's always a happy mix of, like, shenanigans, and then we actually drop some, like, legitimate knowledge, which we, we're going to talk about river fishing in the spring because outside of the Niagara River, I mean, we don't really have, like, an actual river unless we go down, like, the Susky or something yeah. like that or the Allegheny, which mm-hmm. I don't think Andy even has fish of existence in it. But, like, we don't have much. I'm saying, like, you have rivers all over the place that you can go and fish or creeks, oh, I mean, things yeah. of that nature. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, dude, it's, it's the whole lifeblood of what we've got going on around here. I mean, it's the Tennessee river and every little Creek and tributary that feeds into it. And if it's not moving water, then I don't know. It just sucks. It just (laughs) sucks. (laughs) Yeah. We like moving water down here. Yeah. But the only moving water that we're used to is like a natural lake current and like wind, wind driven for the most part, great Mm -hmm. lakes to an extent have, you know, a natural current flow, obviously, but like when it comes to river fishing in the spring, it's it's to me I like I understand how lakes set up and in regards to where these fish come out of you know out of the wintering holes and move up into staging and then go to spawn and all that jazz. For the most part, I understand that, but from a river standpoint, it's like you always hear current is the ultimate negator, yep. and it's like when there's no ice to be had, you know. Where do these fish from the wintering hole, like when you go and start fishing in the spring, where do you go start looking when it comes to this? Are you fishing the same stuff that you fish in the summer or is it a completely different outlook when you, when you go and launch your kayak or boat? So let's, let's specify here a little bit so I can understand and help to maybe break this question down in several different ways. Are we talking about like dam discharge fishing where you've got artificial current in a river or are we talking about a naturally flowing river like out of a mountain? Well, let's go natural because I think that'll apply to the majority of folks. Okay, so that's that's something that this time of year. I mean, that's I've already kind of started getting back into that style of fishing. Those 
tops of rivers and creeks and that kind of those naturally flowing rivers, it, it is amazing how they act almost exactly like an, a lake will act. And in the fact that you've got fish that want to live in the deepest water possible. And sometimes that's eight feet. Sometimes that's 15 feet. You know, it just depends on how the river sets up, but then they'll also want to move up shallow and they'll want to eat and they'll want to focus on bait fish. And that's usually in that, you know, five to or, you know zero to 10 foot of water range. And then they're going to want to spawn mm-hmm. and they're going to want to look for the same exact things that they want to look for to spawn in the river. Now, all that being said, your biggest factor that's going to play there is the current itself, is how is the current affecting all of those things? And, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of complicated process to learn, but once you kind of get a, a good grasp on it, you start to understand how the river sets up and how fish use that current to live. And Andrew, you probably know all about this fish and steelhead. I mean, when you look at a river, you know, if you've got a big boulder in the middle of the river, that boulder is going to create a current break. And then there's going to be an eddy behind that current break. That's a natural thing for that fish to sit up on, on that river to do everything that we just said that it wants to do. It's usually a little bit deeper water behind that thing. It allows them to ambush and to eat. And then it's also a great place for them to spawn as well. And so... You know, when I'm looking at a natural river, man, I'm, I'm really kind of, especially when we're coming out of the winter into the spring, I'm looking for those natural transitional areas where they can have access to deeper water. And deep is very relative when we're talking about rivers, mm-hmm. because we can be in a situation where you're dealing with inches that turn into a couple feet, or you, we can talk about where we're talking a couple feet turns into eight or 10 feet or even 20 feet even. And so, you know, just look for those natural areas where you've got that transition where they can go from deep to shallow as quickly as they want to. Because in the spring, what do we often have? We have these giant, you know, temperature swings. Mm-hmm. Just this past weekend, it went from 78 on Friday to 29 or 39 on Saturday morning. <laughs> so, you know, those fish went from we're ready to make babies to we're going to be in 25 foot of water again. And, and so just this, those river fish act exactly the same way. And so just look for those kind of transitional areas and then start to learn to read the current because that's one thing that a natural current, naturally flowing river or creek versus a river or a dam driven river creek where it's kind of applicable to both. But that naturally flowing creek is going to set up completely different because the thing about a naturally flowing creek is guess what it's done since the literal beginning of time it's naturally flowed that way. Mm-hmm. And so there's going to be these consistencies in those creeks and in those rivers that you can go year after year after year after year. And there's going to be a fish sitting there year after year after year after year, because even if it gets killed or you take it out of there or whatever it is, there's going to be another one that just goes right up, up into its place. And so that's kind of almost the, I love about naturally flowing rivers is fish and naturally flowing rivers act like y'all's fish do those Northern fish where they do the things that they're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And it's like, they have a system of which they go through things. It's like when the water hits this temperature, they move up and they spawn, then they sit here and they eat and they do all these things. Whereas when you get into those artificially driven rivers that are, you know, powered by dams, when the current's not on, dude, it's a crap shoot as to where they're going, why they're going there or what's going on. Now, when the water's flowing, then you get some more of those consistencies, but even then things can vastly change from day to day, hour to hour, week to week. I mean, hour to hour, even like if they, it goes from 86,000 units coming out of a dam to 80,000, it can totally shift where those fish are at. 
And so the naturally flowing rivers, you know, I, I always say if you're looking to get into like that creek fishing, river fishing kind of deal, the kind of stuff I like to do is naturally flowing rivers, pick a few rivers, learn them really, really well, and then pick a few more rivers and learn them really, really well. Because there's going to be these consistencies through each one of them that make it where it's almost easy to go catch fish because you're like, well, that rock had a four-pound smallmouth behind it last year. And most likely, there will be another smallmouth just the same size sitting behind that same exact rock this it's year. probably the same fish, honestly. Exactly. I mean, they are so – it's almost routine. I mean, like, I have seen the same fish sitting in the same spot, and I know it's the same fish because it's got a little spot on its tail. And I'm like, how does that fish know to stay there? But they do. They just live there, and that's like their little area that they live until they die and drift away, you know? And that's a that brings up a question we got in the comments from Brad here saying, "Will river bass stay in one area or travel up and down throughout the year?" And he's referring to a natural river. They will think? move. Now that is something I have seen. It's kind of depending on here. The two things that it depends on is the temperature, how hot is it outside, and then the amount of rain that we've had because the amount of rain is definitely going to change the dichotomy of that river. And so what I've seen is like if we get a ton of rain, you get a you know, massive inflow of dirty water, the water levels rise up. Essentially what the fish do is what they do in a lake. They get up on the bank and they just hide behind something until everything regulates and then they go get back in their little areas. The second thing is that is that temperature. And what I've seen is, and this is definitely true with spotted bass for some reason, largemouth, smallmouth, they kind of will they don't move as much, but the spots are weird. When it gets really, really warm outside, they will go and they will find the fastest moving water that they can get in, wherever the most oxygen is and wherever you're going to get the most movement in that water. And I think that primarily has to do with the fact it's the oxygen, the food's being brought to them, but then that water is usually overall a little bit cooler because it's got that turbulence in it. You know, it's got that air exposure. It's got that movement. And that water I've seen where I can be – 10 yards from where the water's flowing and it's, you know, 78. And then you get right to where the water's flowing and it's 72. And it's, so it's just enough that it makes those fish want to sit there. And so, yes, they will move. Um, but if you've got like, you know, some of these rivers that I go to literally, it doesn't matter if it's December or if it's July, it's like 65 degrees. And it's because they're mountain springs with groundwater coming out of them. And it's a lot of groundwater flowing into them. You know, you get your big primary spring that, that flows the whole entire river, but then it's got a bunch of groundwater flowing into it. They'll stay consistent temperatures all year long. And those fish, unless you get a massive influx of water in there to muddy it up, to dirty up siltation, they're going to hang out because it's so consistent all year long. Andy, what do you think from, from your experience with Niagara River? Do you kind of see the same thing? Yeah, I think smallmouth in river systems are very silical. Like if there's deep water access to a spawning flat, like you can follow them from winter. They're deep. As soon as water hits like 42 degrees, they slide up on the flat. They stay there till it's like 65 and they spawn. Then they drop back out and they might spread out a little bit more in the summer because they're looking for food to eat. And at that point they might decimate an area of gobies. And if they're shad, River systems tend to have more bait in them, in my opinion. So the fish have more food and more opportunities to roam around. But <clears throat> personally speaking, like they live in the same areas. Like if you know where a smallmouth lives on a river, natural or a big glacier river like the Niagara River is from the Great Lakes, I mean, 
I've got spots in the Niagara River that I can go 100 yards from the spawning flat to 30 foot of water and catch them in the summer, winter, fall in like a 100-yard stretch. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And, and they're the same fish every year. Yeah. You can you can like, oh, yeah, I caught you last year. <laughs> they're extremely consistent. I mean, and it's fascinating to me how current makes fish so consistent because even in some of those artificial systems, I'll never forget this. this is one of the damnedest things that I'll – I'll ever see in my life. My dad caught the same exact largemouth in the same exact spot on the same exact bait six different weeks in a row. What? Sounds about no right. joke. Current fish this, is the ultimate negator. They'll, they, they'll is, constantly eat. As long as the current was flowing and the, the certain amount of was coming out of the dam, this fish would set up on this grass flat the same exact way every single time and after a while I, I started to want to figure out like why is it there what is holding that fish there well the water got drawn down i just pulled up there on the flat there was like an old dock that was in the water and we couldn't see it and it was two like four by fours in a v setting and that fish sat there and just would move up to that same when the current got a certain way, that fish would just move right up behind that thing and sit there. And you could drag a freaking it was a magnum worm, is a strike king a bullworm. Take a strike king bullworm and drag it behind that thing. And I mean, dude, every single time in almost the same exact spot, dink and hook it. And the and the reason we knew I have I have a picture of the fish somewhere. The reason we knew it was a fish is it had a split in its tail. And we he caught that fish six different times. That's incredible. This is my home. This is my spot. Ain't nobody coming in it. Yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> dude, that's how consistent that they can be. It's how resident that they can be. And that's the thing about when, you, when you're fishing a river, you're fishing especially a natural river, you're dealing with, for the most part, residential fish that are going to be present there from the day that they're born till the day something takes them out or they die. And... You know, I've seen the same exact bass swimming in the same exact areas, especially in some of these real clear, like, rivers and creeks that I like to go fish in the kayak. I'll take it and drop it in, and it's like, man, I've caught – and muskies are another great example. I've caught the same muskie three or four times, and it's just because they don't really have anywhere to go either. That's a whole other thing about a river that, yeah, they can swim down or they can swim up, but if there's something blocking their way down or blocking their way up, they have this area to live in. And so they can move within their area a little bit. You know, there'll be inconsistencies where there'll be 10 yards one direction or 10 yards the other direction. But if it consistently stays the same temperature with the same amount of water flowing through, and they're just going to chill in that one spot because they have no reason to move because food's yeah. being brought to their face and they can just, you know, lash out, eat it when they need to. And then they just sit back down on their little couch and wait till something else comes to their face. Yeah. Uh, so, like for for lakes, when it comes to spawning fish, and you guys mentioned this in a river system, like on a lake you have flats, or you have these these coves in regards to like largemouth, these these back cuts where they can go and they do their deed. But like people think river fishing, there's current. You don't obviously there's your eddies, of course that'll be your prime answer. But I mean, where other what other locations do these fish have to spawn in the river? You would be amazed how a fish will spawn just smack in the middle of the river <laughs> like it's it's kind of crazy like I, I really didn't understand how I, I, what's the word i'm looking for like how i guess uh 
like inventive a fish will get in where they'll spawn mm. on tops of rocks, the backsides of rocks, dock posts. I mean, anything that's hard that creates just enough of an eddy. And I know that's the word we want to avoid, but like just enough of a current break that they can put their eggs there. They're going to do it. I mean, prime example is, and I told Bailey, I think I was texting you about this. I saw a ginormous spot on a bed in a Creek that I was fishing the other day. And what was crazy is it was just smack in the middle of the Creek, but there was just two rocks right like beside each other and imagine imagine a set of boobs people and they were right in the right where the boobs come down to the chest and like it was just but these rocks these weren't ginormous rocks these were probably like six inch diameter rocks and you had a literally a seven pound spot sitting there depositing her eggs in this little bitty spot and it was just enough of a current break just enough of what she was looking for with that kind of sandy bottom in between there and she deposited her eggs there, and I'm sure she's still either there or moved on now. And so it's it's you almost would be amazed how inventive they'll get, or how in our minds we look at something, we go, nothing could spawn here. But in their little, you know, instinctual driven minds of this is all they're made to do is eat, you know, eat and make babies and survive, they can find the littlest little differentiation on the bottom and they'll put eggs there. Well, and that's something to talk about river current too is a lot of times what you see on the surface is not the true current of the river a foot below yes so it's more that meets the eye yeah like you can literally stand in a river and it's pushing at your knees but your feet don't move because you have more surface current than current on the bottom so if you can understand why your current is quicker on top of not on the bottom you can actually set yourself up really good in river systems as well because those fish will hang in the craziest current you think that they're in but they have this soft belly underneath i've seen fish spawn and stuff like that in a couple creeks around here it's like what are you doing there and then you're like oh there's like no current yeah yeah and and it is and it is fascinating because like fish and blow a dam discharge especially because that's artificial you know you're talking about hundreds of thousands of cubic feet of water being pushed through this dam and so weird things happen with the current that you don't see in natural rivers, but they do happen in natural rivers too. But like one thing that I've seen is where you'll throw a jig in there and the current is jerking down river. But when the jig gets to a certain depth, it starts going back up river. Yeah. And like, it's those little things, those little differentiations that you look for. And we'll, we were going to get into this when we got into dam discharge fishing where it's just, honestly, it's time on the water. Like, and there's like little weird things that like Caleb Bell, like our good buddy, Mr. Basquez, like he showed me before where he's like, all right, so you see this? So you see how it's flowing down like that? He said, but when you throw your scrounger in there, it's going to start going back up river when it gets to 10 foot of water. And it's like the only way that he knows that is just, guess what? He's throwing a scrounger in there and it's going back up river, you know? And so it's like, it's just, you know, screen time. A lot of people say with electronics. Well, with shallow water current fishing, it's literally just about going out there and throwing stuff in different areas and seeing how things work and putting the time in of physically, you know, actually doing that that makes it work for you. Yeah. Um, Andrew's right, dude. That was one thing I didn't even think about until you brought it up is how crazy current can be. I mean, I got a video I've got on Instagram and it's uh, I throw a, a plopper and you see the waterfall and I'm rolling the plopper and the plopper is going right. But the waterfall is flowing straight at me. And it's just this weird, like, little current seam and this little current differentiation that you can't see with the naked eye, but it's what's actually pulling and how the current's actually pulling. And when it gets to a certain point, a smallmouth comes up and crushes it. 
<laughs> and you just got to throw it in there and figure out kind of what it's doing to get them to do that. Yeah. I, I remember a specific time with Caleb when he took us, uh, took Zach Hall and I out uh, and he didn't say anything about it. And there, there's times like, especially when you're at tail races where it's like you, you can tell obviously the current's flowing one direction, but you can't always see like Andy said that like, can't always see with the naked eye what's going on below the surface and we're throwing big plugs and it's like we're going with the current with the current and the next thing you know i lean in thinking i have a fish but it's the current going the other way that's pushing against it like taking it up and it was like it goes oh yeah current's going the other way once you hit bottom in like this direction or like this amount of feet away uh it, it was kind of just like mind-blowing just to some kid who's only ever fished the finger lakes yeah it- we can make it even more complex on you. Like you have insight. You have when you add a curve into a natural current river, like a river system. Yep. Oh my gosh! Like a lot of times you'll have when you have a big bend in a current in a river system, the outside is where the current will flow harder. But if you have like a weird, obscene obstruction slightly above it, you'll get to the next bend. It's just slightly different. All of a sudden, you have fast current on the inside, and you're like what the hell, but you throw your cast in there and it's going back upstream and the smallmouth are at the head of it in the very tail and not in the belly at all. Like, yeah. And, see, and, and to go back, I know we're talking about spring, but to go back to my winter fishing this year, you know, caught a ton of fish on the money badger. One thing that I didn't really expand on a whole lot because it is a complicated kind of idea is what Andrew just said, where like when you're dealing with a river system and current is king, you know, you, and let's say we're not below the discharge. Let's say we're above the discharge and we've got that natural pull that's creating current in this river system. I'm looking for outside bends and inside bends in these rivers because they create just areas for fish where they don't have to work. Mm-hmm. They literally get behind a tree limb and they sit there and they let things come to their face and they kill it and they eat it. And fish are lazy. And that's the one thing about rivers that's awesome too, is it allows a fish, even though they do move and they are moving around, it allows them to be lazy in many, many ways. And so like when you're looking at a river or a creek or anything like that, even if it's man-made or if it's natural, whatever it is, anywhere that you've got a bend in that river, really kind of invest in that area and figure that area out because there's either going to be a bite on the outside bend or the inside bend. And normally for me, in just the way these lakes sit up, it's in those big outside bends. It's where you've got the current coming down. It's going to bend out wherever that current dumps into those fish are going to want to sit there and they're going to just be there eating. And you can get a lot of bites really, really quickly in those areas. And it happens in the spring too. It's just, now, let me ask you this question with an outside bend. Do you notice that if there's additional structure in the outside bend, that's creating more current breaks as that current's flowing, do you get more bites or do you get bit better in a big wide open bend? It, it depends on the body of water and how it sets up. Um, now that being said, I, what I've, what I've found is they're normally deeper, which it gives you deeper water access more quickly. And so you get a lot more vertical kind of structure. You get kind of more of that stair step effect. And now I'm dealing with a lot of lakes where sandstone and limestone are your main, you know, bases for what, you know, the, the mountains are sitting on. And so the er- erosion over time of that river pounding on that is created like these weird kind of stair steps and things. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, it just depends on how it's going to set up. But I think it more than anything, it's just that natural erosion process over time that's created that little bit deeper water that allows those fish to have deep water access. 
And it's the same thing with these natural river to, natural rivers too. Instead of finding like these big lime, limestone and sandstone rock ledges that I like to focus on to get those fish to eat. And that dude, that's a bite. I mean, that can be spring, summer, winter. I mean, it doesn't matter. Those fish live there. That's their resident fish. But like when you're dealing with this, with a Creek, what you'll find is you'll find a bend. You'll find that more deeper kind of bluffed out stuff, but then you also normally find a deep pool and those deep pools are going to hold fish period all the time. And you can sit and I've sat in a deep pool in a river in a kayak and literally caught 20 fish at a one deep pool because they just get flushed in there. They congregate there. There's bait fish there. Everything that they need is right there. And just, it's almost like taking the macro, which is the whole river and turn it into this micro little biome where this fish literally never has to leave because it doesn't matter how hard the current flows, how much water, how much siltation, what's going on, that fish can go and just slip off into that deep water and just sit there and chill. And it's always a natural eddy. It's always a natural spot that they can just chill and, and live there. Uh, for Dustin's question there, I'd say it's probably the most high percentage spot of the hole because those are the fish that are going to be feeding first at the head of the hole as like your current flows into that bend. The ones that are always up in the current are the ones that are proactively feeding. If you yeah. start getting to the fish in the tail end of the current, they're usually more lazy in a more relaxed setting. And you actually have to trick those ones a little bit more in my opinion. Yeah. There's a, there's a, there's a river around here that I really enjoy fishing. And what's funny is that exactly what Andrew said happens. It's like, you can catch the first like 12 on a buzz bait right at the beginning of the hole but at the back of the hole where it really starts where you start to slow down you need to slow down you start dragging a net rig and then you catch those fish but they will they'll just follow a buzz bait but the ones right at the beginning where that current's pushing in they're like i want to kill everything that gets near me <laughs> and so like they're just more aggressive and i think i don't know if this is true or not and i would have to ask a biologist but i believe there's certain something about a certain amount of oxygen and a fish having a certain amount of oxygen in their system that just makes them more pissed off. Because like fish who live in that current, who are living in that moving water where they're getting a fresh flow of oxygen into their face all the time, it's like they are more apt to eat something aggressive and moving than any other fish that I've dealt with. I think it's more metabolism-based because they're burning more calories. They need to be more efficient they're more streamlined too like if you catch a smallmouth out in a lake they tend to be more round and bulbous if you catch yeah. a river fish they're like darts with big tails big yeah. fins for balance so i love river fish so rabbit hole real quick but this you'll find this fascinating i was listening to an audiobook the other day steve ranella it's called american buffalo and he said that from the time that humans started interacting with buffalo to the time that they were almost extirpated from North America by the Europeans, that the Buffalo's head structure changed to make them more efficient at running rather than standing and fighting because their entire existence up to that point, like if a bear or an American lion walked up to them, they'd just get in a circle and they'd fight them because that's how they defended themselves. Well, then when the, when the people came that could throw spears and shoot them with guns came it made them where they couldn't stand and fight anymore. They had to run away because if they did stand and fight, it was just a slaughter fest. And so I'm tying this all back into the bass fishing thing because like it made me think, man, that is a perfect explanation as to how quickly a fish can modify its body or adapt to its surroundings 
to the point where it totally changes how it interacts with its environment. And Andrew, like you said, these river fish in this, you'll notice this the more you fish rivers, you're dealing with smallmouth and spots and largemouth. Like river largemouth, I can look at a largemouth and go, that came from a river. They've got these ginormous, like heart-shaped tails. They literally are big and just like heart-shaped. Their tails and the bases of their tails are huge, and they just are built differently because their efficiency level depends on how they're built. And I think those are genetic things that are all passed down year after year after year, but it's just a fascinating thought that we as humans can have that effect on fish and effect on animals, and their environment does the same thing. And so I think you're right. I think the metabolism, I've never really considered that. That's probably, it's probably exactly what it is. They're just a little more amped. They're a little more pissed than the rest of the fish are. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting when you think about it from a perspective standpoint, like Andy, you mentioned like the, the lake fish, how, and certain times, like you've already experienced it this year where things can get tough. It's like the, the fish that are on the lake are like your, your fat, guy sitting on a couch eating chips that's not gonna get up unless he's he's really got to and but he's like oh look a bag of chips magically appears right in the couch whereas like the people that are out active every day working out are eating at more actively because they need more calories throughout the day so it's like yeah i think what your your point makes a lot of sense were you playing music bro I was playing. I was. I was liking your post on Instagram, and it played music at me. What song was that? Because that was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so oh, damn, like, I think the biggest like benefactor to the metabolism though is 100% water temperature based. So, for instance, you know, I fish for steelhead from end of October through April and guide for them. When it gets to be 33 degree water temp, a steelhead for as big and marvelous that they are of a fish right a giant rainbow trout they only have to eat once every 26 days when the water gets cold hmm. for how big they are so like you'll catch steelhead if you cut them open in the winter time you'll notice that their bellies are empty and a lot of times you probably catch a lot of winter smallmouth in these rivers that yeah 65 degrees but if it's cold out there they're probably their metabolism slowing down they're probably more slender and if they are chunky a lot of times that's their eggs because they start making their eggs in the fall it's interesting well i mean if you look at the bass fishing and we need to revisit this topic in like august because river fishing in august is just bonkers and it's because it's like every fish in that river it's like i guess yeah the temperature gets to a certain point where they're like I want to kill everything. And it's like, <laughs> dude, it doesn't matter. I mean, like there's rivers around here that I literally I can take a buzz bait, a buzz bait and some extra plastics for a trailer and just go. And like, they're so aggressive. Every single fish is choking it to the back of their throat and they're just in a mood. And I think again, it kind of goes back to what I was talking about earlier. Those consistencies, they're con- they can consistently stay in the same spots, have food brought to them, blah, da, 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 da. But when that temperature gets right, they're just like, okay, it's time to be a murder machine. And they just start murdering everything. And it's awesome. (laughs) I like it. Yeah. So when it comes to a natural river, a river that's always flowing uh, and doesn't change too much year after year, I feel like for someone that's trying to go and learn it, it's, it's a easier learning curve because you don't have, we're in the dam, the dam systems where they go, Oh, we're going to turn the water off now. Hey, yeah. we're going to rise at 10 feet. Oh, we're going to sink. We're going to, you know, drop at 10 feet, yeah. you know, or it's, it's much, much easier to learn. 
how does this compare to that of a, a dam driven river system? So the naturally flowing river, yes, is going to be a heck of a lot more easy than or easier than your dam driven system. Now your dam driven system is all dependent on a human. And so, you know, the main thing about, especially the TVA dams, you know, so I'm talking specifically about TVA dams, Tennessee Valley Authority, they control every dam on the Tennessee River system until it flows into the Mississippi River. And so I'll give the, I'll give the little thing because I always love to say it. You've got Douglas and Cherokee and Norris that all flow eventually into one of the Tennessee River system lakes. Um, but Loudon is your headwaters of the Tennessee River system. Loudon goes into Watts Bar, Watts Bar into Chickamauga, Chickamauga into Nickajack, Nickajack into Guntersville, Guntersville into Pickwick, Pickwick into Wilson, Wilson into Wheeler, Wheeler into the Tom's Bigsby Waterway, Tom's Bigsby into the Kentucky, into Kentucky Lake, and Kentucky Lake eventually goes in the Mississippi River. I may have missed something there, but that's how it goes. <laughs> and so you got to imagine all of those lakes are controlled by a dam that's owned by the TVA. And the TVA is the Tennessee Valley Authority, which is a federal government entity that runs all those dams. Their main concern is not fishing or the fishermen. Their main concern is flood control and hydroelectrical production. And screwing over tournament fishermen. And screwing over everybody. <laughs> and, um, and killing so, all the weeds. And killing, and killing everything. Um, but, like, so that, but, but you're right. I mean, they don't care about us as anglers, but we do get the the benefit on the back end of when they are, you know, pulling water through these dams or they're, you know, uh, you know, we've had a bunch of water and the dams start to spill, which is essentially where they just open the gates enough and the water spills over the top. You get this artificial current. That artificial current is going to change the total dichotomy of some of these lakes. And those lake, the whole money badger bot that I got on this year with the crankbait. It had everything to do with the fact that we had a ton of rain moving in, and that lake that I was fishing on is a pass-through lake between two bigger lakes. Hmm. And so there's a ton of current being jerked through there. But here's the deal. If I went out there on a day that they didn't have the dams open and they weren't pulling current, guess what the fish didn't do? They didn't bite. They didn't eat. So it totally changes that fish. And this is kind of going back to that buffalo thing that I was talking about. I was going to tie it in right here, is that – we have created a system where we literally can change the entire way that a fish interacts with it, its environment. And so when they turn these dams on, you've got a bunch of current moving out of here. These fish will move up shallow. They'll start to use the things in those rivers like they would use in a natural river, but it's all dependent on what the humans that are running those dams or what factors are playing into what those humans decision-making processes are, whether those fish eat or not. Same general idea of what we've been talking about here with how a natural river sets up versus an artificial river, but it all has to do with the fact of whether you have that current or not. Now, those fish are catchable without that current, but it's really, really, really tough. Like, it totally changes how they interact, what they do, and some of them just won't eat. Like, that is the main driving factor that makes them want to eat is the current starts flowing, they move up shallow, and what happens is, is as that current gets flowing and as the water starts to rise, naturally, the bait fish and all that other stuff is going to come up with it. It gets the bait fish turned up. It gets those fish's feeding instincts going on. And so if those things aren't happening, the fish are just like, it's like a shark to a chum line. Like if it ain't there, they're not coming to it. It's got to be there for the shark to go, hey, it's time to eat. Those bass can be the same exact way. Yeah. yeah I feel like this one is... 
so difficult and why I think another reason why a lot of folks like look at Chickamauga or something like that and forget that it's a river system. Yeah. Yeah. That's all it is. It's a giant river, man. I mean, like, and, and that's dude. Chick is a perfect example of a lake that if it, you don't have current, you're not catching fish. They are so, so current driven. I mean, they love in the morning. Great example. I'll go back to this. When we were fishing the Hobie on Chickamauga, Mm -hmm. I went up the second day. I swung for the fences and went frog fishing. That morning, they started pulling water from Chickamauga Dam into Nickajack. I had where the where these dams are so big and they can move so much water. I had an artificial amount, of, like artificial current that was coming out of this slough. I caught frogfish until they turned that dam generator off, and there was no more current coming through there. And those frogfish poof disappeared. I didn't get a bite the rest of the day. It had nothing to do with shad. It had nothing to do with anything other than the current positioned those fish, and those fish ate. And then once the current was gone, the bite disappeared with it. Hmm. And it's just like, it, it is it is amazing. And I try to explain that to people around here and people who don't live around here. I'm like, you guys don't understand. Current is king around here. If we don't have current in a lot of situations, we don't have fish. And, and one thing that happens, and we'll, and we'll expand out to a lake level here, and I've seen this happen on the graph and on, you know, on my electronics. There's a couple spots on a couple lakes around here that, you know, there's rock piles that are the size of the hood of a truck. When there's no current, those fish will be spread out in an area the size of a football field. So you have the same amount of fish that are as catchable as they are when they're on the rock pile, but with no current, they're spread out to the size of a football field. So it's like trying to, you know, you know, hit bowling pins with a bowling ball, throwing it, you know, into a football field. Yeah, you may hit one or two, but you got to get kind of lucky. When they turn that current on, they all rock to that one rock pile. And so you've taken 20 fish that were all spread out over a football field and you've put them in right on the 50-yard line. And then you go and take your bowling ball and try to hit one of them. It's going to be a heck of a lot easier. And then plus the current adds that extra level of they're a little bit more tuned up. The water's moving. They have to look in a direction. They're getting bait fish brought to them. And then they turn on and they want to eat. And that damn discharge fishing is the same exact way. So you've got the same amount of fish living in the same area, but instead of being on one particular rock pile, one particular, you know, um, barge tie up or whatever it is, one current break, when the damn water's on, they're spread out all over the place, and it's just a heck of a lot harder to catch them. And so that's kind of the way to almost think about that and how current affects those fish is not only not only do they feed on the current and feed because of the current, but then the current also makes them isolate to smaller areas, which we all know you, it, the way that you catch fish is present them with something. And knowing where they're sitting and why they're sitting there because of the current can allow you to present them with something, and then they're going to eat. So for somebody that is fishing this style of river, that's damn driven, they turn it off. What is your first move when it gets turned off besides leave? <laughs> um, follow the current down. Cause you're going to have your, it's not like it's just going to like disappear. You can actually follow current down. And that's something that we do a lot around here um, is like, you got to imagine something in motion stays in motion until it gets stopped. You know what I mean? And water's the same exact way. And so it's an interesting thing that we'll do, especially in some of the rivers. Like, you know, we jet, jet boat fish in the, in the summer. Right? You know, my, I got a couple guys that 
have jet boats I go fishing with. And what's amazing is we'll run up when the current's cranking in the morning and then they'll turn the current off and we follow the current all the way down because the fish are going to be eating with that current all the way down. So that's one thing you can do. Mm -hmm. So that's an option. So if you're in a river, you're floating in a kayak, you're fishing a jet boat or you're fishing in an aluminum boat or even a glass boat because there are certain areas you can do that too. You just follow that current down and stay with that bite until the current hits an area big enough that it disperses and you lose that kind of concentrated current. Because that's a whole other factor I guess we didn't address. These rivers, a lot of these dam-driven rivers, where the dams actually discharge out into are constricted areas. And so, like, you know, Chickamauga Dam is enormous. Mm -hmm. But in comparison to the vastness that is main Lake Nickajack, it isn't as constrained as Chickamauga Dam is. And so the dam, where the water is actually flowing out into is only as big of an area as the dam is wide. And, and so you got to kind of figure out what that looks like. Pickwick's different. Like Pickwick's massive. And so like when they turn the, the dams off there, like it has enough area that it disperses and the current just goes away. Whereas like, you know, some of these other lakes, you've got this narrow enough area for a long enough period that you can follow that current and go with it and, and catch fish. Now, if you can't follow the current or it does disperse into a big area enough that the current just dissipates and goes away, I'm going to pull off to the first kind of natural stopping point that those fish would want to move to if they're moving down. Because a lot of times when you got a lot of current, fish move up, they get shallow, they're easy to catch. You can throw big six-inch swim baits on three-quarter ounce heads and crank baits and stuff like that, and they just smash them. But when that current goes down, literally, a lot of the times, you'll the water level will physically drop because you don't have as much volume pushing into a small area. And so when you don't have that volume of water, it's just like a, it, uh, you know, you put ice cubes or whatever in a cup, the water rises up and it's like mm -hmm. this, it's just that volume makes the water rise. And so the water will physically drop. And so you've just kind of got to know the, the, the river again, that's putting in the reps out there, but find that first natural stopping point that those fish are going to want to go to. It can be a barge tie up. It can be, a, you know, just a, a drop in the river. It can be a small ledge. It can be just anything where those fish will kind of naturally move to and pick up something slow, start flipping a jig, throwing a Ned rig, throwing a wacky rig. I mean, those things are the things that I've had a ton of success with, especially um, below some of these, these dams up here. What you'll find is the way that they were designed, and they were designed. A lot of them aren't naturally made like this. The, the You know, people will go in and they put a, a giant dam in and they'll just totally change the bottom structure they'll dredge and they'll get it where that it can handle that volume of water that's going to be dumped into it when the, the dams are open and what they usually do it's like these like almost stair steps down to the bottom where they dredge it out and i don't know why they do it it must have something to do with the engineering of being able to handle that much water but those stair steps create a natural place for those fish to just pull off to and so when that water drops two three feet they're just going to go that first kind of stair step and eight to ten foot of water you throw a net rig there and drag it in front of their face and kind of slow down and really start to pick a lot of that apart, they'll eat it because they're still kind of pissed off and they're still small mouth and spots and large mouth. Mm -hmm. They're still going to eat and do their thing. It's just, you've got to change. You almost, the best way I can put this, if the water's fast and aggressive, fish it fast and aggressive. If the water's slowed down to almost nothing, you've got to slow down to almost nothing. <laughs> That's kind of how you've got to approach thinking about that water and how that water affects those fish. That's a great way to put it. And that's a, that's a great question here is we had a little bit earlier, but asking what your favorite baits are for rivers. So if you could 
say two two for when the water's moving and two for when the water ain't. So when the water is like really cracking and, you know, especially this time of year, if you've got big forage in your lakes, throw bigger swim baits. Like, you know, we got a lot of um, thread, not thread fin, but a uh, gizzard shad, a lot of big bluegill. One of my favorite things is like six inch, five to six inch uh, hollow belly swim bait. You know, something like, uh, I don't know, what is Berkeley's? Berkeley's called the power swimmer, right? Nah, it's just their swim bait. They're, they're, theirs is literally called the hollow belly. Okay, the, the the you know like a hollow belly, uh, like the bass tricks. Um, you know the zoo. I think Zoom makes Zoom makes one that I love. Mm-hmm. That's the one like that before. Yeah, dude, it's and you can't find them anymore. I literally have like six packs of them out there, and I will fight somebody. I will fight my own grandma for those things. Yeah. Like they right. only had them out for like two years, didn't they? Because yeah, and they just disappeared because they disappeared. And they they are they are the perfect swim bait. It's like a five inch. It's really six, but it's a they label it as a five inch hollow belly swim bait. Um, and so I like that on like a half ounce to three quarter ounce head, depending on how aggressive the current is. And then a crankbait, like a small body, medium diving crankbait, you know, money badger, bandit, rock, spro rock crawler. I mean, any of those kind of crankbaits, dude, I mean, the more aggressive you can be, cause that's the thing is like, I've taken people to do the damn discharge fishing thing. And this is damn discharge specifically. I want to get into kind of more naturally flowing river baits here in just a second. Mm-hmm. Damn discharge specifically. There's often times that they're pushing out 88 to 90,000 cubic feet of water per second. That means that you could probably not touch your trolling motor and be going five miles an hour down current. <laughs> like you are moving. And so like you're throwing these baits in there and I mean, just reeling them as fast as you can trying to keep up with it. And you would be amazed how a smallmouth can hit something moving that fast. But then there's the added factor too. There's always probably a back eddy there too. So you feel like you're fishing super fast, but realistically you've got a bait kind of hanging in the strike zone for a long time and it gives a fish a chance to eat it. Same thing with the crankbait. Now when the current gets turned off and it rips down to nothing, I'm going to pick up a Ned rig first. I've just had a ton of success fishing a Ned rig, like three sixteenths ounce head, maybe even a little bit bigger head and just dragging it super slow, you know, and representing something like a crawdad and all that. Cause you'd be amazed too how many crawdads will live in that quick of a current. And I think when the current actually gets turned down, the crawdads are more apt to kind of come out and be like, Hey, we can actually do something now. Whereas when the current gets cranked up, they crawl down on the rocks and they chill until it kind of chills out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a jig, I love to flip a jig. Like um, one of the things around here that we have a lot of are big barge tie ups and those barge mm-hmm. tie ups will be like consecutive like beside each other they stack them up and there's like these little seams in those barge tied up and they're like shaped like this and they go all the way to the bottom and both when the current's cranking and when the current's not cranking the fish love to sit on those seams and they'll suspend all up and down those seams so you take a half ounce jig and literally throw it in there and just start feeding it line and then just watch it sink and like sometimes you got to sink it all the way to the bottom and they'll be sitting there and they'll eat it or they'll hit it somewhere down the wall you just watch your line and it'll and you and you can catch one and it's just a it's a natural thing or a man-made thing that those fish like to sit on because bait fish is brought there it's there's usually an eddy in those little creases like you'll have this crease you have five miles an hour current coming out from it but then there'll just be this swirl in that crease and it just swirls and it's just an easy place for those fish to live and have food brought to them and so that's the two things that i like now natural like naturally constantly flowing rivers spinnerbait you know, like a chopo, especially when it gets warm enough. Um, you know, uh, I even like um, and this is we were talking about this the other day. Six cents came out with that line through head with the the 
treble hook through the top. Mm-hmm. So like the hangover, I think they're going to call yeah. it or whatever. Yeah. So what? So one thing that I used to do to kind of make that artificially is I would take a like a paddle tail swim bait, like a like a Kitek or whatever else. You know, anybody that makes that kind of ribbed swim bait, do the straw trick through the head run a treble hook out the back and hook it in the back and then just put like a little Nico weight in the bottom of it where it makes it virtually weightless, but it's just enough weight that you can still cast it and kind of keep it off the bottom. And that's a great bait to use in those situations because what I've found, especially in more shallow rivers, is smallmouth will pin things to the bottom. And so if you're swimming it along, you would be amazed how a four-pound smallmouth can somehow in two foot of water get up over top of something and pin it down. And so you naturally get that treble hook right in the top of their mouth and it's a it's a great bait that or you can just do like a ewg style like a beast hook with no weight on it it's another one of my favorite things um and then a ned rig man i mean like if it for some reason gets tough and it's still a naturally flowing river the ned rig is the king i mean it's always going to be the king you just got to pick it up and try it. But that's kind of those are the things that i definitely are my big focuses is just have something to cover the top that moves quick, have something that covers the center of the column to move quick, and then have something that you can kind of tinker around on the bottom in a natural flowing river. And it, it doesn't take much to catch those fish, man. They're not they're not crazy. I mean, you've been to the Susky. There's like I think they're coming for me. Do you hear? Yep. Bethany called. They called. It's it's a fifty one fifty. Um <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> Where's that dude going? Oh it's stopped. Stopped. yeah, he stopped right here at my house. It's definitely a fifty one fifty. Um but like but like you've seen on the Susquehanna is a perfect example of a river that's just like, dude, they're not that hard to catch. It's just, yeah, there's some super specific things that you can kind of get on, like mm-hmm. you know, a uh, bug. <laughs> yeah, Ewing did, like this weird thing. But mm-hmm. for the most part, a buzz bait or a chopo, a swim bait or a spinner bait, and a net rig, and like one of those three things are going to bottom. And it's just because mm-hmm. the world that they live in, they're hungry and pissed off all the time. <laughs> You got a comment saying two nights in a row cops are involved. <laughs> Free Sarah. Free Sarah. Here's the thing. He didn't even have his lights on. That's the weird part. Mm. That is weird. Uh, but you, you said something there that it's going to trigger a tangent here in a second. But you said a beast hook for a bigger swim bait. I had PTSD when you, you mentioned the, the beast hook. I think I might be throwing all mine away after, after the Harris chain. Oh, yeah. What happened? I couldn't stick fish on it. Really? And I was told afterwards from people that throw bigger paddle tails with beast hooks to say, yeah, yeah, the hook sucks. That's interesting. I don't want to Hayabusa now. I do. Well, the Hayabusas are really, really good. And the BKKs are good too. I got some of those because they got the little keeper on them. Like you can Mm -hmm. slide it up under there, keeps everything together. Um, I don't even know if it's a beast hook. I just know it's like a weightless. And and I'm not even talking about like for the river, like the natural flowing river. I'm talking about like a four inch swim Mm -hmm. bait. Like yeah. a, you know, uh, like a power swimmer or whatever, like four inch in some sort of shag color, and just a hook big enough for that, you mm-hmm. know. But I like the I like the the treble hook idea because there's one thing about smallmouth, and the Susquehanna is a great example. On any river that you're fishing, what you'll find is they have no place to go other than up, and so they're going to do a lot of up. <laughs> and so you normally lose fish when they're flying through the air and like you know so that's one thing i like about a treble hook where it separates that bait away from that hook where they have almost zero leverage on you that's what's going to keep them pinned and that's why i like that kind of i don't know that treble hook idea interests me a whole lot i'd never seen it anybody i know you said someone else had done it 
but I'd never seen that. So I was just like, oh, that's what I did with a straw and all that, but now I don't have to have a straw. <laughs> like, yeah. It actually works without that. Have you experimented any with like bull shads or glide baits or anything? Yeah, so that's something. <clears throat> never with the bull shad. I've heard a ton of people about the bull shad, like burn and stop with the bull shad. I had a ton of success on it. The glide bait thing is super interesting. Um, it's something that me and John have both kind of got into more mag draft and, you know, coal shad kind of bite too. That's a whole nother thing I'm trying to learn right now. I think the coal shad's going to be supreme because it doesn't roll over. Like, yeah. so you can fish it in current. Mag draft, you have to fish it so slow and yeah. current. Yeah. It, it tends to get pushed and it'll like swing on its yeah. side. Yeah. And I've already caught some fish on the coal shad in naturally flowing rivers this year already. And it's been awesome because I can go throw it out there and I'm just like, here she comes, and she's just a working right down through there how it's supposed to. But, yeah, no, the glide bait is interesting because if you get the right glide bait, and I've not really found the perfect one for this yet, and what Andrew just said is perfect because what will happen is with a, big, with a really tall glide bait, it wants to roll over because the current pushes it over. But if you get something, I'm trying to look for something that's kind of, I don't know, slender and more, you know, kind of, I don't know. Narrow profile, I guess, would be the best way. You need to something that chops more as opposed to walking. Exactly. You need to be able to work it quicker. Exactly. And and what you can do is you can get in those current seams and just like and just let it sit, like hang there, and then the current will just start taking it down. And dude, that's the most naturally occurring thing that you can imagine. I mean, it looks like a giant piece of dead something floating by their face, and they just eat it. So I'm experimenting with it yet. I mean, I can't give you a. Like, you know, I'm by no means an expert in it, but it's something I'm playing with. I'm trying to get it kind of figured out what's the best, what's the best tool for doing it. Um, because if there's one thing for certain, it's amazing how you can go down a river that's, you know, a foot deep and throw a call shot out there. And it seems like the biggest, baddest mofo and the, the whole river just comes swimming over to it. Like, I will try that. And, and they <laughs> usually smoke it. <laughs> yeah, it's. We got Brian Slayton in here saying the sixth sense draw that's coming out will be incredible. I've been hearing that from a, quite a few people. That's going to yeah. be legit. Yeah. Uh, and then, dude, I'm going down this rabbit hole of, of glide baits. I've been triggered. I bought a pro KGB, found one. Oh, yeah. Found one. Yeah, but you got the perch one. That's fine. We live in the north. Yeah, it's that's bone, bone or ghost. I shack saw somebody posted it. They had it in their hand, that little six cents glide mm-hmm. and i thought mm, that's what cool. i need right there and and that's a whole nother thing because like you're not going to go out there with like a especially if you're like floating a river or doing something like that like you don't want to go out there with a glide bait rod you just want to go out there with like a you know a seven six flipping stick and like it's all you need you know and yeah. so yeah i'm interested it is dude it's a it's a rabbit hole especially those smaller glides i think that the chopping south i think dude the potential the potential and look at what milk I mean, not that he's throwing that small but like look what milken did on toledo yeah exactly i mean that's a perfect example carl jockinson on chick exactly and like i think those smaller more manageable glide baits are the perfect like in between between i'm not going out here to try to catch one giant fish like drink but i'm trying to get a bunch of bites and if the bites gonna be a bite it's gonna be a better than average but that's what we were talking about the other day he said like this the six inch you know like mag draft or six inch call shad is the perfect bite getter and normally the bite is that better than average fish that can really help you out a lot or just turn your day around or whatever if you're in a tournament it helps you out but we also like to catch big fish Mm -hmm. so yeah i think like 
the whole world of six, five to six inch glide baits is a whole new rabbit hole. We're probably all going to go down and have a ton of fun with. You saw and a lot of it, it with the it, herring guys on on Murray. They were all throwing it, especially yeah. the jointed style. But I, I got from Omnia one of the nine inch, six inch draws in bone as like. Don't think I'll get many bites on this, mostly just pike, but I just want to like have fish show themselves because that's what I find fun and glide because I haven't gone deep into it yet. Like was the most it? I got was like the sh- the Savage Gear Shine Glides that throw yeah. like a damn helicopter. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I got, I get this thing and dude, I, I kid you not, I tied on it for the first time in practice for my tournament this past weekend. It's within my first five casts. I catch a five and a half pounder on it. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, yeah, I'm hooked. Yeah, I'm sold now. I'm that's like, up. I'm. I'm screwed. I remember uh, last summer when we went out fun fishing the like three times we went fishing all last year. You threw the Arashi one and like that ten inch smallmouth blasted it mm-hmm. on oh, yeah. the drop. I'm like, you yeah. stupid fish. But here's the deal, dude. Like that's my experience with glide bait so far. The biggest fish I ever caught on a glide bait, I caught it on a like a five inch shine glide. Yeah. The smallest fish I ever caught on a glide bait, I caught it on a Depths 250, and it was not even as big as the bait. And it's like, I feel like there's like this weird, like you're either going to catch monsters or you're just going to see a bunch of monsters or you're going to just hook like, you know, Moby Little Dick, not Moby Dick. Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. I love Brian Slayton in the comments said it's finesse gliders. Yes. It's like it is like the rise of the statement. Who was Iconelli said? This is finesse cranking. I was like, no, bro, cranking's cranking. Just because you throw a shatter up, don't make it finesse. I think glide baits are going to be glide baits or glide baits. Just because it's four inches and not twelve doesn't make it any different. <laughs> you say you never mind. I guess. <laughs> hey, listen, buddy. It ain't, it ain't how you. It ain't. It ain't the sides. It's how you work it. All right. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Is that why you're not catching them? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> it could have something to do with the size, too. I'm not sure. Oh, yeah, I'm just messing. Uh, dude, that's, that was like my route into this stuff was, I think it was you and Caleb that I kept talking about the Shine Glides, and I finally bought one, and it was the uh, the first Bassmaster Kayak event, like I think it was three years ago, I think, in the fall on Chick, and it was that super cold week we got. And I was so excited because my literal pattern was running bluff walls like super parallel with a shine glide. <laughs> and I caught like two over five and a half in practice. Yep. And then of course it got to 80 degrees in the weekend. Yeah. But like it was that like kickstarted the hey, yeah, you can catch fish on big baits. Not that yeah. a shine glide's big bait, but at that time for this New Yorker, a shine glide was a big bait. Oh, for yeah. Me. oh yeah, dude. It's it dude, and it's fun. And I think I think the problem with the with the big swim baits is people go I think if you want to go down the rabbit hole of turning into Oliver and I and just throwing big baits, that's cool. Do it because it's this very specific thing where you're hunting a big fish. Like it's like killing big deer, but if you want to use it as a tool, there's a certain size of bait where it gets too big, where it's not just a tool to catch a bunch of fish anymore or get bites. Don't tell Milliken that. Well, but that you're talking about a dude there that has perfected. And I told Bailey, we were texting about this the other day. I said, Mm -hmm. he's perfected an art. I was like, mm-hmm. show me somebody else that's doing what he's doing. I mean, yeah, I'm sure there's people out there, but like he has perfected the art of getting these fish on forward facing sonar to react to these big baits. And I think that is a whole avenue within itself, too, where the forward facing sonar big bait thing is very, very unique. 
Mm -hmm. um, because not only are you dealing with a fish that probably doesn't normally see a whole lot of baits, but then you're presenting it with a bait that Chris Zaldane said this, normally when they see something that big, it's not fake. Yeah. And like, I think when you combine those two things together, then you're really getting into something that's like super deadly where you can put together a 29 pound bag in an open and just spank everybody's ass like you did, which mm -hmm. that made me very happy. I just want to let you know that it was one of the most satisfying things that I've ever seen. Cause everybody was like at the beginning of all that, I said, and I would tell Milliken this to his face. I said, he's either going to suck or he's going to beat their ass, but I'm leaning towards he's going to beat their ass. And yes. he's going out there and he's beat their ass. And I love it. <laughs> like it is, it is satisfying to watch. And so, yeah, but it's a, it's very interesting. It is a rabbit hole. And I, I can't wait to get live on the boat and toss some bigger baits at some fish that I see offshore just to see, you know, I want to see if I can figure that out. I want to see if I can do that. Um, but I do think that it's an art what he's got going on, man. Like it's, it's crazy. It's cool to watch. Yeah, and that's what like what's nice about the north here is that our crystal clear water is I can see this nine inch glide bait and bone a hundred yards away and I could yeah. see if it's being waked down or not. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. like we don't need to look at them on live the way Ben's doing it, but I'm I'm certain it's working. Uh and I'm definitely not trying it this year in New York at all. Not doing it. Nope. I think no. it'd be terrible. You definitely won't catch a 10 pounder on Cayugan. No way. No, nope, definitely won't exist. <laughs> I'll quit fishing if that happens. <laughs> no, you won't. You'll go after the go after an eleven, obviously. Like no, I leave New York probably. You'd be like, all right, so, I've conquered New York. I'm out. <laughs> so realistically, do you think there's like an eleven to twelve pound fish in Cayuga or any of those finger lakes? Yes. Really? Yes. I I think they live in areas that are untapped and they're smarter than us. And it's just uh -huh. Who's going to figure it out first? So it's like hunting a big deer. Like it's like trying to kill a 200 inch deer. Like you can do it, but you better be ready to dedicate some time to it. They're I mean, probably in that area that nobody ever fishes. And there's that one magic honey spot on like an eight foot deep flat. And it's like, oh, there's one stick here with one piece coming off it. And that's his home. Yep. 380 days yeah. a year because there's only 365. Yeah. He just never yeah. leaves. He's, like, he's like that that one fish that dad caught six times, but he's actually big and nobody. Yeah, and nobody's <laughs> ever caught him before. Yeah. <laughs> that this is the stuff I think about when I'm trying to go to bed. Like, there we have lakes, Alex, that are 400 feet deep, Whew. and there are eights, eights and a halfs getting caught in the biggest community holes on this on these lakes. And there are sections of the lake that are, I mean, these places are huge. Yeah. Like in regards to like, especially how long they are. And for the most part, pending the weather, they're very hard to get like to, yeah. to manage. And it's like, there are certain sections where it goes from the bank. You start walking off your, your, say your, yeah. your dock. Right. And you're deep. Yeah. And so like, there could very easily be a lay down that's right there. There's a small flat for that fish to come up and, and feed. Yep. And it goes back to sit on his log. That's in, you know, 10 yards off the bank, puts in 30 foot of water that for them to sit on and live their entire life. Because a lot of our fish, a lot of our lakes, like there's a lot of bait coming to back and forth and back and forth, especially in the summer months with our alewives. And there is that, that drop as their basically their channel swing, right? That's what they're following. It's that hard drop right against the bank. I think and so. They don't have to move. Like I, I feel like it's a no brainer that they're there. And especially on the lakes that are connected to Lake Ontario, because yeah. now they're spitting up gobies. 
See, I think there's two untapped potential areas that where the big, big, like big, stupid fish live. Small rivers and creeks that nobody's jacking with. Mm-hmm. And I've seen that come to fruition around me where it's like, I've never been there. Let me drop a crescent in there and see what happens. And you catch a four pound largemouth in literally inches, not feet, inches of water. And you go, okay, well, if it can live here, what else can live here? And then you go catch a 40 inch muskie and you're like, in literally inches, not feet. And you go, okay, what else can live here? Like if that can live here, then a 10 pound or 11 pound or 12 pound bass can live here. Mm -hmm. The second one is these extremely deep lakes. I think lakes that are just stupid deep where fish can suspend, where they can, like you said, just low and little flat with a tree on it, whatever. I think that those are the two places where where we as anglers, as untapped potential, can go find ginormous fish outside of Texas and Florida. (laughs) I, I think we have a class of fish in New York that's that six to seven, maybe even eight pound class that roams with our lake trout in the summer i would not i would not almost 100 percent. i i'm a firm believer and i kind of tested it this fall that the biggest smallmouth in the lake roam with walleye i think they just follow walleye around and eat bait fish yeah i could see that i mean there's been times dude i've been sitting on one of these finger lakes and they come up schooling on alwives on like literally the nice part about the kayak is like it's very subtle it's not a big boat and like they came up and started schooling right next to me and it's brownfish Lakers and there was green ones and it's over 30 foot of water. Yep. So I mean, like you see it happen on Murray, you see it happen on Norman and all these other lakes, like largemouth can school with them too. I, I mean, you see it like with like the stuff Ben's putting out on his channel, yep. like these giant, like he's like, yeah, that's a group of 10 of them. I just caught an eight and a half pounder on, on him. And like, they were all the same size blob as that. Yep. Like, they, and that's what I'm saying. And that's what I'm amazed by is that art that he's, I mean, it's an art is what he's doing. Cause he's figuring out, not only has he figured out suspended fish, but he's figured out suspended big fish. And it's like, I agree, dude. I think some of the biggest smallmouth I've ever seen in my life on Cherokee Norris Douglas, I caught because it showed itself in 76 foot of water. It come up and it popped a gizzard shad. And I threw over there with a crankbaiting. I caught a, a almost six pounder doing that one time. And then I started to think, what is that smallmouth doing out there? Well, then forward facing sonar comes along a couple years later and it starts taking 23, 24 pounds to win tournaments again. And you, I, you know, you go watch these dudes and they're throwing Alabama rigs at fish that are suspended over 150 foot of water. And it's like, oh, there's a whole group of fish out there that we don't know about. You know what I mean? In like, now we do. Now we do. And now the thing is now taking that and refining it even more and just figuring out how now do I get not these groups of 25 and 30 fish, but these groups of like six to seven giants to eat. And man, I think, I think fish do so much, so many more things than we could ever imagine. And that's one thing that these creeks and these rivers amaze me with too, is like places that you think there is no way their fish is living there that's probably the place that they're living and they're living in nothing, but like it's a thriving ecosystem that we just don't even understand. You know, I understand how they got there, why they're there, what they're doing there, but they're there and they're doing life mm-hmm. and they're getting big. Cause nobody, everybody drives by and goes, ah, ain't nothing there. Or like when you're running across the lake, it's 150 foot of water and you go, ah, there ain't nothing there. When really there's a school of 
eight pounders, five, eight pounders cruising around eating nail wives. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And that's their life. That's what they do. Chasing ghosts, basically, at that point. Pelagic bass are probably some, they are the hardest fish to like program and understand. Oh, yeah. Thousand percent. I mean, Especially when they keep spraying our lakes, we're going to have to get used to it. Dude, you got to think about the oceans. Like, think about the ocean as a. I know what I'm going to do. I'm just going to drive around the middle of the lake, find that floating log, and just live scope it like mega live before. <laughs> like, what is it? What is it? Mahi that yeah. does that? Yeah. <laughs> they like lay on them to avoid dolphins and stuff. It's crazy. Have you seen how they fish for like Wahoo? Like where they literally are driving the boat at like 20 miles per hour. I've done it. It's so much fun. Like you're literally running the boat at 40. And it's like, and you, these things are like skipping out of the water. And all of a sudden a Wahoo comes up out of 80 foot and just smokes it. Like, yeah. That's nuts, dude. Crazy, dude. It's crazy. It is insane. Well, dude, we're going to wrap things up here. Uh, you got anything coming up that the folks need to know about? Oh, uh, I got a video coming out. Sunday. Well, I got a video coming out Thursday. I dropped a short tonight. I'll have a podcast live stream Friday. I'll have another video Sunday. And then this week I'm going to West Virginia to fish with Mr. Drew Gregory and John Dalton. So that'll be fun. Mm -hmm. And then I come back for about a week and then I go to Michigan. And so I'm going to be with my buddy, Mr. Benjamin Nowak and Caleb Bell. We're going to go look for six pound smallmouth. And so all those videos will be this way very soon. And yeah, just doing my thing, you know, bibbity bopping. I, I, I'm very jealous that uh, maybe not of the weather, but that Ben and Zach are fishing with each other this week on St. Clair. I was supposed to be there this weekend, uh, but Lance got her like final PT test tomorrow. And then we have our, our college alumni weekend. That's freaking schedules this weekend. I would love to be fishing St. Clair right now. Yeah. Maybe not with how the winds are supposed to be, but it's uh, yeah. But I bet they're going to <laughs> probably those two know that lake so dang well so it'll be i'm sure they'll have a lot of fun but uh for folks uh if for whatever reason you're not subscribed or following alex his social handles are below in the show description whether you're watching or listening i highly encourage you guys to do so but uh buddy always appreciate you joining us all right i got uh orange yellow green or really green oh no the soundboard hell yes uh andy you get to choose i got choose last time I'm going really green. Back before the war broke out, I was a saucier in San Antonio. <laughs> hey, this is why we need a soundboard, Andy. <laughs> oh. It has to be Cops theme song for whenever Deacon shows up. Let's do yeah. another one. Let's do another one just because blue or purple? Purple. I'd like to take this chance to apologize to absolutely nobody. Yes. All right. I'm done. All right. I'll I see, you later. see you, buddy. Right. See you, man. Oh, man. Always a riot. Always a riot. Oh. Well, dude, uh, really fast before we turn the show out, I know you need sleep. Uh, you got a, a house full of ladies that are probably what driving you bonkers at this point. Like, true. What true. Is, yes. Uh, but for folks that want to go up and catch some big old New York smallmouth, how can they do so? And are there any availabilities? Ooh, yeah, that's starting to get tight. Um, July is starting to fill up. August is almost full. I'm only offering like 10 days in July and August, so 20 days total. And I have, I think, like three days left in July and maybe four in August. September is wide open. October is starting to fill up pretty quickly for big smallmouth and largemouth. I am offering electronic trips, too, to like help you tune in side imaging on hummingbird and Lawrence's since I kind of know what I'm doing a little bit on those and 
Bailey has taught me a lot, just picking his brain all the time, trying to get it going. But yeah, um, we're booking up quick. Actually, I start this weekend and I don't think I have a break from guiding until like the end of June. So I think I have like 41 days straight or something ridiculous or 41 out of like 50 days in a row or something crazy. So, well, if, if folks in the say, especially the summer months when largemouth fishing is pretty good and they want to come up, are you offering anything like that? If they want to come up fish some grass in the summer or anything, yeah, let's go frog fishing, flip some grass. Even if you like have a weak point, like fishing docks, we can break down how to fish docks better and get up shallow, like, all of that is available. I'm fully licensed United States Coast Guard for the big lakes and anything that is not uh, anything that's connected to the Great Lakes or Ocean. So like some of the bigger finger lakes, you have to have that license and I have my New York State Guide license so I can go just about anywhere that we can imagine. And yeah, it's going to be a fun summer and I'm trying to keep some days open so I can fish tournaments as well. But yeah. And for folks that want to fish some New York largemouth, Andy is fiending for some largemouth trips. Yeah. Seat in his eyes. <laughs> yeah. That's all I've been doing. Like I know I'm going to be smallmouth fishing for like 41, 42 days straight or something ridiculous. So I've like completely skipped Erie because even though knowing it's been really good, I'm like, I'm going to be out there so much the next two months that I don't even want to think about it yet until this weekend. Until this weekend, when it's going to be probably bonkers. <laughs> yeah, probably. It, it's about to be silly. So, heck yeah. Well, folks, you guys check that down below. Uh, Andy's email and all that jazz. If all his socials are below, if you guys want to uh, book a trip, highly encourage you guys to do so. But as always, appreciate you guys. OBD Williams coming on the show for Friday. If you guys don't know, he's a kayak and boat hammer out on the California Delta. If there's a tournament on the Delta, uh, it's probably who I'm going to put my money on, whether, whether it's a boat or a kayak to win that thing. That dude has won some pretty dang big tournaments, uh, especially over in California. I'm going to be excited to pick his brain on some, uh, some, um, oh my gosh, title fisheries, as well as just like we people talk about how the Delta is oh, so up and down. It'd be cool to learn about that fishery and some more California fishing. So make sure you guys tune in. Appreciate y'all. See you on Friday. Well, that was an awesome show. Hope you guys enjoyed it. If you can and your app allows it, please leave us a rating and review. It really helps us get seen more, which allows us to access more time and more variables to be able to bring to the show to make it better for you guys. So hope you enjoyed it. And if you did and you liked some of the things we talked about in this episode, and want to check out our show partners, all of that is in every single show description. You can click down there. It's got all of our discount codes, all of our links to our show partners, where you guys can go and support the people that support this show and help us make this show happen. And of course, this show does not happen without you guys. You guys know we appreciate you. You're the Searsanga fam. You're the reason we're here. Appreciate y'all, and we'll see y'all on the next one.